We'll hear argument first today in Case 07513, Herring versus United States. Ms. Carlin. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. In February 2004, the Dale County Circuit Clerk told the local sheriff's department that the court was recalling a warrant that had been issued earlier for petitioner's arrest. Having received that notice, someone in the sheriff's department physically removed the warrant from the file and physically took the warrant back to the court clerk's office. But no one, either then or later in the sheriff's department, ever updated the computer file to indicate that the record had been, had, that the warrant had been recalled. As a result of that police department error, the petitioner in this case was subject to a warrantless arrest for which there was no probable cause five months later. Did this they have some regular system for updating the computer base? I mean, I assume it was updated at some point. No, Your Honor. There was no — there's nothing in the record to suggest that this department ever does, for example, what the FBI does, which is to conduct periodic audits. Had they conducted one, they would have discovered almost instantly what they discovered five months later, which is there was no warrant in this case. So this — People who are — you know, the warrant is served, they're arrested, they go to trial, they're in jail, their, their name still shows up as having a warrant out for their arrest? We don't know, Mr. Chief Justice, because this is a department that, as far as the record reflects, conducts no audits of any kind to update its files. And if you look at uh, page 41 and page 60 of the Joint Appendix, one of the things you'll discover about this department is that everyone in the department has access to the physical place warrants are kept. They're kept in several different places in the office. Well, then how did this warrant clerk, I guess is what I'd call her, um, discover the error? She discovered it within 10 or 15 minutes, right? She discovered it because what happened is a clerk in another police department called and said, is there a warrant for uh, petitioner's arrest? She looked at the computer list on her computer and said yes. Then this other warrant clerk said, it, please fax us a physical copy of the warrant. So she went to the file where the warrant should have been. It wasn't there. She went to another file. The warrant wasn't there. She then called the court clerk's office and discovered that they had recalled the warrant, which was back in their files five months earlier. Why did the first uh — First person in that scenario need a physical copy of the warrant? Uh, the record doesn't reflect that, but she simply, I guess, wanted to verify that there actually was a warrant uh, because they were picking petitioner up in a different county. Does your argument depend on the quality of the record keeping in this particular department? I thought your, your argument would apply even if this department had uh, excellent record-keeping procedures, but nevertheless made a mistake in this instance. That's correct, Justice Alito. Our view is, uh, just as is true with respect to probable cause, the fact that 99 percent of a department's arrests are with probable cause doesn't mean that when they arrest someone without probable cause, you say, well, you get one bite at the apple or a sort of good-enough-for-government work theory. And you're not asking for Arizona versus Evans to be overruled, are you? No. We're asking you to apply Arizona against Evans. And if I could uh, give an answer to the question the Chief Justice was asking earlier that comes from Arizona against Evans. What happened in Arizona against Evans, and Justice Stevens mentions this in his dissent there, is the clerk discovered there, the court clerk discovered that the warrant that had been uh, that she had verified had, in fact, been recalled. And so what they instantly did is they checked their files, and they discovered four other warrants from that same day that had been recalled but that were still in their files. Here, we didn't have anything done after they discovered the error. They discovered this error, and as, as I say, they've gone on their merry way. There's nothing in this Well, record. there was something done in this particular case, though, right? The warrant clerk notified, was it the Coffee County uh, people? Yes, that Mr. The warrant yes. that the information she'd given 10 minutes before was inaccurate. Yes, Mr. Chief Justice. And that indicates part of what we're concerned about here, which is this is a department that was built for speed, not for accuracy. But none of that matters for your argument. That's, oh, no. You want to make a, you want to draw a clear line between errors by, by clerical court employees versus errors by police employees. That's correct. We think that's the most workable argument because what we want is a system in which uh, suppression hearings can be conducted expeditiously based on the facts of particular cases. Well, how expeditious would it be? Suppose there's negligence on the part of both a court employee and a police department employee. What is the, the judge supposed to do in deciding the suppression motion? Is this a, a comparative negligence determination? I don't think it would be exactly a comparative negligence determination. I think it, it that raises a difficult question, and the way I would approach that question is to perhaps use some of what Justice Kennedy talked about in Hudson as a causation approach. That is, if 
But for the negligence of the police department, there would have been uh, I thought no negligence is irrelevant to you. I, I think if the police department was wrong, even if they had been very careful, but for some reason or other, they made a mistake. So you're arguing for sheer causality, not for negligence. If well, negligence made the difference, uh, then we'd, we'd have to go into uh, these factors that you say are very difficult to calculate. Well, Justice Scalia, I was answering Justice, Alito, Justice Alito's question, and if I could just give a little. No, bit I, I know you're no. answering his question, but, but, but you want to answer it in a way that's that's consistent with your with your argument. Well, it is consistent. So let me explain why it's consistent. Which is our position is, if police department error causes an unconstitutional arrest, right. then you should uh, suppress the evidence. But if both the police were negligent and the clerk was negligent and the police You suddenly injected the word negligent. In, okay. In, in if the police — okay, let me take the word negligence out then. If the police error didn't cause the discovery of the evidence — Alone, but that's there correct. was dual causality. It isn't a matter of yes. dual negligence. No, that, no that's correct. That's correct. The reason you keep putting the word how are you going to determine whether there's error without determining whether there's negligence? Suppose because the court clerk calls up the police department and, and says the warrant is still outstanding, and in fact it's not, uh, and it sends them over a physical copy of a warrant, but that warrant has been withdrawn. Now, uh, the police could always take additional steps. They could send someone over to check the records, to, to look at the court docket, to make sure that the warrant had not been withdrawn. So there would be causality, but, but without determining what, no they should, what their there. duty was, how are you going to determine wh where this error uh, should, be, uh, should be assigned? Because in that case, there would be no police error. What this Court held in Evans is uh, that police departments are entitled to, re to rely on the representations of court clerks that there are warrants. So if the court clerk erroneously sends a, a warrant over, the police are not required to look behind that warrant, just as they're not required in Evans. Well, let me give you another example. Suppose the, the court clerk calls up and says uh, it leaves a message, gives a message to somebody in the police department, and they memorialize that, and they say, called up, and let's say the warrant number is the same as the docket number of this case. So the court employee says, uh, writes down, called up, says warrant quashed in warrant in, in case 07-513. The, the court, the, the police department has a record of the call, and they say, received call from court clerk Warrant to be quashed, warrant quashed in case 07-531. And so the 513 is not quashed, the person is arrested. Now, who caused that? You have to have the a police hearing? The uh, police department person caused that by writing down the wrong number. How do you know that the police department wrote down the wrong number? It's the same question as in Evans. How do we know who made the mistake? That question, just like the question, is a question on which you're going to have to hold a hearing. Because Evans says if it was court error, there is no suppression. And our position is if it was police error, there is. But, but just, that's a very just, manageable Just, just so I have your theory uh, uh, firmly in mind, you, you would say there is police error even if what happened was that there was an unpredictable and unavoidable computer glitch, no negligence on anybody's part. The computer simply malfunctioned, got it wrong, wasn't, wasn't negligence. You would still say that that is police error, and you would say that that counts against the uh, uh, That's correct. As long as it's police error, it counts against the police well, error. Why, if there's no negligence? I mean, well, well, why do you need to argue that, and why do you argue that? I mean, uh, doesn't there have to be at least negligence on somebody's part? Well, here's the problem. There are two kinds of negligence you might have. That is, you might have the negligence of an individual employee, or what you might have is a decision to use a shoddy record-keeping system that doesn't catch those errors. So Either the of those is, things yes. are negligence or yes. worse. So what I didn't understand is why you would charge the police with anything or suppress a warrant where there was a mistake, but no one was negligent or worse. Well, we have had some difficulty finding any reported cases in which there is a police error of the kind of computer glitch that was just hypothesized. That is where the machine... But, but, but what you argued for yes, well, was well, you said it right. should be dispressed 
even if no one is negligent or worse. And I have trouble seeing why you're suppressing a warrant where no one does anything wrong at all. Well, part of what I'm trying to get at in my answer to your question is it's unclear in that situation whether anyone has done something wrong. That is, whether somebody in the police department programmed the police Well, somebody has done something just wrong. Just assume the it, hypothetical. It, the hypothetical, the computer malfunctions. Well, you could have an act of God exception to the exclusionary rule if you wanted to. I'm sure this computer case doesn't ask be compared to, to God, but let, let <laughs> Can I ask it's more powerful sometimes. Could I ask this question? You're saying the question is whether anybody did anything wrong at all. Is it not undisputed that this person was illegally arrested? There was, the arrest itself violated the Fourth Amendment. There is no question the that question as a matter is whether of fact. The, it can be justified. Yes, this was a warrantless arrest without probable cause, and the question is, does the government have some sort of affirmative defense as to why it should be allowed to use this? No, no, no. It's a separate. It's a separate question. It may be an illegal arrest, but the question is the separate one of whether or not you exclude the evidence uh, uh, collected incident to that. Uh, arrest. And we have, on, in several cases, separated the two questions. And I, I guess it's difficult for me to see, if no one has done anything wrong, no one, why you would suppress the evidence in that case. Well, in that case, of course, is not this case, and you might want to leave open well, no, the question. No, but we're having this difficult. No, Do we I, have to get into negligence, or should we assume, which I understand to be your theory, as Justice Breyer put it, that you would still suppress the evidence when no one has done anything wrong? We are asking in this case for you to suppress when someone has done something wrong. But uh, how, do so, you no, know? It, how do you know? It, it, That's the problem. Well, we do know that someone did something wrong here. Because but we want an, we answer, know, to, no, we want an to answer to the question. No, I'm Let's trying assume to, no one did anything I know, wrong. Because I'm this, this bears upon the fact of why are we doing this at all. No, I'm trying to answer that question. And the point I wanted to make is this case asked for a narrow rule. But the question that you may also want to be thinking about here is how to have a workable suppression hearing. And if you require showings of different levels of fault, rather than asking, was this police-generated error, the suppression hearings are going to be somewhat more cumbersome. So you have a choice. Exactly. You, uh, you, you, you give something, you get something. If you adopt the negligence theory, the, we would be happy with the, that. The noose is not as wide, but on the other hand, it's a lot harder to uh, to calculate whether there, you, you, every case in, involves an inquiry into, into whether there's police negligence or not. It's that's a much easier exactly rule. Was I'm there a warrant or not? If there wasn't, uh, end of the end of the. Well, that's exactly why I, why I said I think the easier rule for judges faced with suppression hearings is a rule that says — I mean, I don't know what the underlying law is here. I mean, what, I guess it's a little weird, but what happens if the policeman arrests the wrong person, but it's nobody's fault? You know, the person was pretending to be his brother. Well, but or, that's or like — the mother said it's John and it's really Joe. And so the policeman wasn't at fault. They arrest the wrong person. That I guess that's happened in history. Sure. Do they suppress things then? I wouldn't think so. Well, there are, two different, there, there are two different kinds of cases where police arrest people, right? There one set of cases are where the policeman uh, is arresting on the basis of probable cause. And there, there's a lot of room for error. That is, based on the facts, the mother told him it was Joe when it was really John. That's good enough, good enough. I mean, do we suppress? No, you do not. We do not. There was okay. not even a That's, So there's no reason, then, if we don't suppress when there's no error in the part of a policeman, none, it was just a weird circumstance, then I don't understand why we would suppress here. And nor do I understand why you have to argue this, because I, I thought not, it's clear here that no. there is That's, error, and it was negligently caused. There were four months that went by without anybody doing anything about this mistake. No, that's correct. Yeah. Um, if I can just say one thing that will make this perhaps a little clearer, Justice Breyer, you would not even find a Fourth Amendment violation in the first place in the hy- hypothetical I you see. gave, because there was probable cause to arrest. Isn't there probable cause here? Be, he, probable he, cause? he thought he had a warrant. He had a probable cause no to arrest No such thing as probable cause to believe there's a warrant. Uh, you yourself and Hudson said it's a bright-line rule. Either there's a warrant or there isn't. Here there was no warrant. Well, th- that's just rephrasing it. It's probable cause based on the existence of a warrant, and it turns out to be there's a mistake in the warrant. This Court has never said that before, which is it's not probable cause to believe there's a crime because there's a warrant. It's prob- you, you've always separated those two lines of cases. doesn't seem to make sense, though. Why should we separate the two? Well, uh, because here — The policeman is mistaken about whether he saw this guy uh, — 
picking somebody's pocket, he's mistaken about that. And, and if in that case uh, the, the search is uh, the product of the search is admitted, the other case he's mistaken about whether there was a warrant. Why? Why do you want to draw a line between those two? Well, for two reasons. One is, in, even in the probable cause case, if the reason he thought there was probable cause is another officer told him there was probable cause, and that officer was wrong, this Court said in Leon, you continue to suppress. Here, this police officer was told by other police personnel that there was a warrant, and there wasn't. So it's a case just like the cases post-Leon. You suppress when the chain of information is fatally flawed by police error, which is so when you, — you would impose a burden on the officer on the street serving the warrant. When he gets the call saying there's a warrant, he's supposed to say, well, are you sure? Did you double-check with the clerk? When was the last time they updated the computer system? I don't want to go through all this if the evidence is going to be suppressed. At every chain in the in command, you would impose that burden. No, I would not, Mr. Chief Justice, because if you announce that police error is going to lead to the suppression of evidence, the police will do a better job of maintaining their records. Yeah, but I mean, I don't and know what the situation is like. I don't know what the situation is like in Dale County. They probably don't have the latest version of word perfect or whatever it is. They're probably making do with whatever they can under their budget and doing the best they can. But there's not a Barney Fife defense to the uh, violation of the Fourth Amendment either. If a department is having its records kept the way they're keeping them here, then suppression is the only thing that tells them. You're going well, to you have said there wasn't anything in the record about what type of program they might have, whether the they were updated. Here we have some. They found the mistake in 10 minutes. Which suggests if they had been doing a good job of maintaining their records all along, this violation never would have occurred. And what's the justification for drawing a distinction between a court employee and everybody who works for the police department? Suppose the person who makes the mistake in the police department is a, a, a person who holds a unionized position where advancement is based purely on seniority, or it's a civil service position where the person is is totally protected from any sort of uh, adverse job consequences as a result of displeasure about or pleasure about how the job is being being performed. And what's the, the, the justification for drawing a distinction between uh, errors committed by those two employees just based on the, where they fit in the organizational box? Well, three things. One is the police themselves are often unionized and protected from Retaliation. Second, well, what if it's not a police officer? It is not second, a law enforcement officer. It is a clerical employee, or it's a computer guy. Well, I think that the cleanest line is inside the police and outside. And let me give you a couple of reasons why. The first, well, one is that you you are stuck with the Arizona v. Evans, which says it's if it's a well, if it's court the court, guy. yes. But I, I was going to give some reasons why the police department should be treated as an integrated whole. Um, one reason why is in many departments, officers, sworn officers who are on desk duty for physical disabilities and the like perform clerical tasks. A second is, on the record in this case, we don't know whether it was a sworn officer who removed the warrant from the file or it was a clerk. And there's no way of finding that out now. Mm-hmm. A third reason, if I could just point sure. to this, this court for just a moment, is uh, — Clerical personnel, support personnel, there's a reason they're called support personnel. They support the mission of the office. And here, this office decided to maintain its records in a particular way and to have this quick reference file and the like. Presumably but, but the to support. the County people aren't called support offices for the Dale County police. They're support for the police. And this court well, no, has you keep o- saying this, and you did this in your brief. You just call everybody police, 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 when the question is whether there's a distinction between the Coffee County police and the Dale County this police court, that is pertinent for purposes this of the at least since Elkins has recognized that police departments often operate across the board. If I could point to Leon itself. In Leon, the search was conducted by California uh, municipal police, and the evidence was used in federal court. And this court never suggested, not even for a minute, that the fact that the evidence was obtained by state level local-level police and used in a federal prosecution was relevant to the question whether or not it should be suppressed. Because what the Court is trying to do in the exclusionary rule, as I understand it, is to deter future violations. That's crucial to your case, yes. really, that you — that the, the police will not keep good records un, unless, unless we let the criminals go. 
that they and, need a powerful well, incentive. And, and that's, that's the theory of the exclusionary yes. rule. But as, as has been expressed in writings in some of our prior cases, things have changed a whole lot since we adopted the exclusionary rule. And I think it's uh, quite uh, — policing has become much more professional. And I think it's quite unrealistic to think that if we don't adopt the rule that you that you propose, police police uh, departments will just willy-nilly uh, uh, not keep track of warrants. I, I just don't think that's true. Uh, that that's not professional policing, and and I think uh, uh, to say the, to apply the 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 severe remedy that that you propose in this in this area at this date uh, seems to me uh, excessive. Well, we don't think this is a severe remedy, and we think that the professionalism of the police is in substantial part a response to the message that the exclusionary rule sends, which is either you professionalize your police departments or the evidence they obtain is going to be suppressed. Either you maintain good records or the reliance on those records is going to lead to suppression. You don't we don't know if these records are good, bad, or indifferent. As far as this record shows, this could be an isolated incident. Or it could be typical of what goes on. We just it don't could know. be. And if I can just point to, uh, if you look at the government's brief at page 48, uh, they talk about how the FBI maintains its wanted lists now. And they show that due to a list of reforms, they were able to cut the error rate there from about 6 percent to about 3 percent. None of those reforms, limited access to entry, uh, periodic audits, is done here. And the last available published data, which we cite in our brief about, uh, our, about Alabama, is that they had about a 13 percent error rate. That is 13 percent of the error So you're back to arguing that there was negligence and that that's per Well, in this case there was negligence, and you needn't go any further than that. Uh, if the Court has no more questions, I'll reserve the remainder of my time. Thank you, Ms. Carlin. Um, Mr. Dreeben, we'll hear now from you. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The exclusionary rule under this Court's cases has always been a balance between the interest in achieving some deterrence of police misconduct and the high cost of excluding probative evidence of criminal activity. The exclusionary rule does not put the error back in the box. It does not correct it. It serves only as incentives for future compliance to avoid future Fourth Amendment errors. In this case, where nothing is shown other than a negligent and isolated clerical error in the maintenance of warrants, there is no showing that suppression of evidence will achieve the kind of appreciable deterrence that this Court has said is necessary before the exclusionary rule is applied. Do we assume on the basis of the record that there is negligence in this case? The District Court did find that there was negligence. Uh, there's very little in the record, Mr. Chief Justice, that explains precisely what did happen. But I would take issue with my colleague's comment that the record shows that there were no auditing procedures. The record simply was not made on whether there were auditing procedures. What the District Court did find, based on testimony, is that the Dale County Clerk's Office and the Dale County Sheriff's Office both had a reliable system of record-keeping on which law enforcement could rely. That's a finding of the District Ms. Carlin made the point, um, and I'd like to get your response to it, that if we adopt something that depends on the showing of negligence, that that will uh, require extensive hearings in every case into exactly what their computer update system was and so on. Mr. Chief Justice, I actually think that negligence alone should not be enough to justify suppression because it would not produce the appreciable form of deterrence that this Court has said is warranted. But I also think well, that may, may I interrupt you there? I mean, why do you say that? I mean, we, we have, for just getting outside the criminal law for a minute, uh, we, we've got a whole system of personal liability law in which the theory is that, in effect, requiring compensation for negligence, uh, even though it is not an act of bad faith uh, or malice, uh, is, is going to affect conduct. Uh, why do you assume it will not affect conduct here? I'm not sure that it won't affect conduct to some degree, Justice Souter. I think the exclusionary rule requires far more than saying that it might affect conduct. And I think that what the Court well, should look at — don't you think at, it's probable that it will affect conduct? I mean, if, the, if the police know that they're going to lose a case — uh, because they are engaging in a negligent or objectively unreasonable way in, in, in relation to their warrant keeping, 
they're going to be more careful. I think the incremental change in police behavior will be modest at best, and I think this is crucial to my view of the case. They, they, they won't know that they're going to lose a case. What they will know <laughs> is that if they happen to arrest someone uh, whom they should not have arrested anyway, they won't be able to prosecute him, right? That's precisely so. So, so. so they're saving themselves nothing. I mean, th- this person would not have been stopped. I mean, if, if, if the difference was we, we, we caught a criminal and we could have convicted him except uh, uh, be, uh, because of the clerical error, we can't. But that's not the situation. They would never have found this fellow but for the clerical error. Yeah. Justice Scalia, but they, but they also, they also as in this case, uh, in the course of, of committing their, their negligent arrest, find evidence of a crime. They do, but from an ex-ante perspective, Justice Souter, they can't know that, but they do they, have They can't know that, but we all know as a practical matter that that's why police want the, 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 the greatest scope to the arrest power. No, I because think Because in the course of doing incidental searches, they find things. They know that and we know that. Justice Souter, what I think that it's important for the Court to know is that the police have ample incentives as it stands to try to make their record-keeping systems as accurately as possible. The police do not have an interest in believing that there's an outstanding warrant for someone's arrest when there's not. The first reason is that an arrest situation is a highly dangerous encounter for police officers. It's not one to be undertaken lightly. That's why this Court has rules that govern searches incident to arrest in order to remove potential weapons from suspects. The police don't want to convert what would be otherwise a routine traffic stop or no stop at all into a felony encounter that could go bad for all concerned. Second, there's a — Is there a 1983 violation here? On the facts of this case, Justice Kennedy, I would not say that there is 1983 liability. It's a litigable issue whether there would be the potential for a plaintiff to show as the defendant in this case did not try to show, that there was a degree of deliberate indifference to a need to have a reliable record-keeping system such that some official would be personally liable for the failure to have that. But I I suppose if the concern were that the police would become sloppy, then a 1983 suit would be Yes. More, more likely? I think a 1983 suit, and there is ample evidence that many such suits have been brought, and we cite cases in our brief, and the petitioner cites cases in his Mr. brief. Mr. Dravine, can I go back to your uh, point you were just making? What incentive does the police department have to withdraw warrants that have been canceled? Why don't they just leave them there? As long as they're there, they would justify arrests. Well, that, that assumes, I think, contrary to this Court's presumption of good faith on governmental right. actors. But if you, if you put aside good faith for a moment, if you just look in terms of, of incentives of officers, would they not have an incentive just to leave everything there? No. They have, there are three reasons why they would not. The first is the danger factor, as but I mentioned. The, the, the existence or non-existence of the warrant doesn't affect the danger. Oh, it certainly does, because it converts what would be otherwise be not a stop at all or a reasonable suspicion stop into a felony arrest. And when the police are undertaking an arrest, this Court has recognized that suspects often have an incentive to escape or to use weapons. That same incentive exists whether there's a warrant in his pocket or not. If there's no warrant, there will be no arrest. And that's why the police have an incentive to clean up the records so that they don't send out the police on warrant situations when there is no warrant. The second reason what you, you said about the danger to the arresting office officer, and so they don't undertake an arrest lightly, doesn't fit with the facts of this case. If this was a police officer who really wanted to go after the defendant, he, he, expect, he suspected the defendant was a bad guy. So that's how this all started. So he called his own department, do we have any warrant? and then the next county's department. But this was an officer who wanted to go after the defendant. Well, Justice Ginsburg, I assume that the Court will make its decision not based on the conduct of Officer Anderson in this case, but in an assessment nationwide of whether the exclusionary rule is necessary because the police lack incentives to keep warrant systems up to to date. And I'm giving reasons why institutionally the police do have that incentive and therefore undertake those kinds of efforts. And there are three reasons. One is uh, to reduce the uh, incidence of of, of arrest so they don't have to 
have the hazard of felony arrest. Number two is? The second reason is police resources. It takes a lot of time and energy to undertake a felony arrest. Many jurisdictions have dedicated warrant forces which seek to serve outstanding warrants, and they don't want to spend their time doing it on warrants that have been recalled. Similarly, in a case like this, the police happen to find drugs uh, on petitioner's person and a gun in his car. But if they had found nothing and taken him down to the station house and booked him, that would have been taking two police officers off the street for an afternoon, wasting their resources so that they're not engaged in the kind of protection of the community that the police force wants to do. And the third reason is that it does not create community goodwill to undertake arrests when people do not have warrants and simply because of a mistake in police records, they're hauled downtown. That's the kind of thing that creates friction between the police and communities. There's one question I have in my mind, and it is the only factor I've thought of, hypothetically at least, that cuts against you, but I don't — this is the argument, and I'd like you to respond to it. What, I take everything you've said as so. Okay, I'll assume all that. And — but I'd still say the rule, the basic rule of suppression, putting Leon to the side, the basic rule of, is home, the opposite of homes. If the constable blunders, you suppress the evidence. Okay. Now, our prior case, here we have a case where the constable blundered. I grant you, not the arresting officers. It was a different policeman, and it was a different form of error. It was about five months. This thing, this warrant had been recalled five months earlier, and you agree that it was negligent. Therefore, the constable blundered. And the virtue of our earlier case, where we said don't suppress, it wasn't the constable who blundered. So I see an absolutely clear line. If the constable blunders, you suppress. It was somebody else who blundered, you don't. Now, every time I've tried to think of a substitute for that clear line, I've run into trouble. I've been sitting in my chambers with my law clerks, and we've tried out five substitutes, and I can't find one decent substitute that isn't filled with problems. Justice Breyer, I What is your substitute? Well, my first answer, Justice Breyer, is that this Court's exclusionary juris rule jurisprudence already draws a number of careful lines based on the balance that I described. All right, but I mean, I'm overstating my point. So, what I'm really driving at and trying to show you is you, if you want to have a different rule than was in the prior case, remember, the one where it wasn't the, the police that wondered, you have to come up with some rule. And I want to know what your rule is. Well, the, the rule, to state it simply, that I think should govern this case, is a isolated and negligent police clerical error in the maintenance of warrant records should not lead to suppression. And the reason for that is there are ample incentives for the police to attempt to correct their own records such that the exclusionary rule would not approve. So we have now, let's think about that. It's an, the, the special rule is now we have the Leon exception. And now we have a new exception, and the new exception is called for isolated police clerical errors. Well, that's going to be interesting, because I suspect the first thing you'll have when you try to impose your rule is we will have the defense attorneys throughout the city going in to see if it's an isolated error. And they will, of course, have a right to decide whether or not this is the only such error, whether there are other clerical errors, how often they occur, what the con I mean, is that an administrable rule? I think it's highly administrable. It doesn't create that many problems. This exclusionary rule hearing is an illustration. The Warren clerk for Dale County was on the witness stand. The Warren clerk for Coffee County was on the witness stand. The arresting officer was on the witness stand. All of those people were asked, do these errors occur with frequency? They said they don't. Our system is reliable. And if there were pervasive deficiencies, I assume that's exactly what we inquire about in 1983. That is, that's correct, Justice Kennedy. And would Kennedy. you add 1983 as number four to your list? That's what I was Yes, I would add number, I would add 1983 possible liability as an additional incentive, just as it was remarked in Hudson, that it provides an additional incentive. What other questions? Suppose that the error here consisted not of a computer, but rather Joe, who is the policeman, has a partner called Sam. And Sam told Joe 
that uh, this is Harry Smith, when negligently it wasn't Harry Smith, it was Joe Smith. Well, I, I, I mean, think does that count as a clerical error if, in fact, it's the man's partner who tells him this negligence? Well, I'm with Ms. Carlin on this one. I don't think that's a Fourth Amendment violation at all. And I think under Hill versus California. Negligent. It's negligent police work. Yes, it's partner, a mistake. Or, that's well, a negligent error. You mean we don't suppress the negligent error of the partners who, after all, say, let's arrest this man over here, and through negligence, uh, they've got the wrong man. You don't suppress? Uh, I think that that's a very close case, and I don't think that this Court — must be millions — a lot — I don't know millions, but there must have been cases where two policemen or one policeman goes off to arrest someone and negligently arrests the wrong man. And uh, when he does that and does a search, we don't suppress? What we know about that from this Court's cases is that if one police officer has a warrant and it's a, he obtained it based on an affidavit, that's purely a That's Leon. I'm not thinking that. No, it's actually not Leon. It's Whiteley, Whiteley. versus Warden. And it, I'm, I'm positing a warrant that was completely based on a bare-bones affidavit, so it would not pass the Leon test. No, I'm, I'm not thinking of a warrant. I'm just thinking of a policeman who has a warrant for Joe Smith, and he goes and he arrests Jack Brown. Yes. Because through negligence, he went to the wrong house. Now, under those circumstances, would we suppress the drugs that I, happened to be found in Jack's house? I don't think it's so clear from this court. Well, there cases. must have been a lot of cases. Well, not in this court. And but what it, about the lower courts? What have they? I'm not aware that there are so many of them in the lower courts too, where it's negligence. Most often, the kind of mistake that's made, the courts say well, it's, it's within the realm of probable cause if it's a reasonable mistake. If it's an unreasonable mistake, negligent mistake. I, I would be prepared to say that the lower courts are probably today suppressing. And this Court doesn't have to decide whether that's correct in order to decide this case. This we case. use the, the word or the phrase good faith in writing the opinion if we write it your way? I don't think the Court needs to use the word good faith. The Court used the words good faith in Leon. It's repeated it in all of its so-called good faith exclusionary rule exceptions. We're talking about an objective rule. And the line that I think that the Court should draw today is between isolated negligent errors and errors that result from a more systematic or widespread pattern, the kind that Justice O'Connor referred to in her concurrence in Arizona versus Evans. So you would allow all of that inquiry every time there's a motion to exclude. That would not just be the basis for 1983. Unless you, you still want a negligence inquiry. I don't want it. I'm saying that the Court doesn't have to reach the issue today of whether a widespread pattern of errors or a complete oh, neglect. That's a little different. Yes. That, all I'm what, saying what about reaching What about reaching your standard uh, in cases in which the, the uh, arrest is wrong, not because there's no warrant, but because uh, there's just slightly less than probable cause? Uh, if there are isolated incidents of that, uh, are, we going to, uh, are we going to say that, in fact, uh, that does not violate the Fourth Amendment? I, I think that's a very different — well, whether it violates the Fourth Amendment or not would turn on whether there is, in fact, probable cause. If there is no probable cause, and I understood your question, Justice No, but uh, we're, we're starting with the assumption that there is a violation of the — I mean, I think we're starting with yes. background law at this point, that there is a violation of the Fourth Amendment uh, if there is an arrest without probable cause yes. or without a valid warrant. Uh, the, the warrant itself may subject, be subject to attack, but at least that's the sort of the front line of, of, of our objective reasonableness inquiry. And, and you're making a dent uh, in the warrant requirement for isolated incidents, and I don't see why we can't or we, why coherence would not require us to make the same dent uh, in the probable cause requirement for equally isolated uh, mistakes. I, I think it's simply a different inquiry, Justice Souter, because as I tried to explain, in this area, the Court can note a number of incentives that law enforcement has to keep its warrant databases accurate and up to date, up to, to speed. Mr. Trubin, can, you, can I ask you a background question? How frequent does the issue in this case arise? In my experience, Justice Stevens, not that frequently. That's my understanding, too. And, and I think to me the case may have more symbolic importance than practical. Well, I, I think that, that, that the, the practical importance of it and the legal importance of it is what kind of a balance is the Court going to strike under the exclusionary rule? We heard a lot um, from Petitioner today about how the exclusionary rule would help 
make police engage in better practices. We heard nothing about the costs of the exclusionary rule. Compared to, for example, but Are to there any cases where — this is a drug peddler here that was caught. Are there any cases involving violent criminals that have been affected by the outcome of this case? Some in the lower courts have involved uh, violent crime, and I think that it would, this case would look and feel very different if evidence of a murder had been discovered in the car. And that just accentuates the point that the exclusionary rule comes with a price to society. It's not free. Mr. Dreeben, if we adopt your, your formulation that isolated negligence doesn't, uh, doesn't count, uh, it, what, is it clear that, that that's all there was in this case? Well, that's all that the district court found. The, the, the district court had evidence and made a finding that there was no pattern of, of violations like this, that the system of record-keeping was generally reliable. This is the findings of the district court that are on page 17A and 18A of the petition appendix. The district court concluded there was no credible evidence of routine problems with disposing of recalled warrants, and the warrant clerk herself could not recall other instances like this. But if, if Ms. Carlin's figures are correct in Alabama, Alabama, there would be suppression. Well, th- there was no record made whatsoever on what Alabama's overall. No, I, I said if her fi- if her figures are correct, and there's a 13 percent error rate uh, either in the state of Alabama or at least in the department uh, involved, that we'd have suppression there. I, unless, if the court is prepared to say that the exclusionary rule is going to function differently on a state-by-state basis, depending on the statewide error rate, which I think is a very unusual thing for the Well, it's going to, to function give. even on your theory. It's going to function differently on a department-to-department uh, basis, depending uh, upon on the a show, rate. Not just a sh- upon a showing of an error rate, but upon a showing that a particular record-keeping system that produced an error was conducted in a manner so that you could say much more than negligence was involved. Well, if you got a 13 percent error rate, I think you got a pretty good prima facie case. You do. I would concede you a good prima facie case. I would want to know more to know what that really means, because it, with a lot of these statistics — But the fact is, in, in less the more showed that they were getting a 13 percent error rate in a negligence-free system, you would have suppression there, and you would not have suppression in the town next door, or the county next door, or the state next door. If the Court adopts a rule that says that a showing of more than isolated um, negligence would justify suppression, you're correct. I would note, though, well, that — no, But I thought that basically was a distinction that you were arguing. No, I think I, I clarified I, — to Justice Scalia that I think all the Court needs to decide today is that an isolated negligent error in police record-keeping should not result in suppression. It should not hold today because it's not confronted. But I take it if you're not accepting, I mean, you're not accepting the the proposition that the the, the 13 percent error rate, which is not somehow shown to be non-negligent, should have a a different result, you're saying in the 13 percent case, uh, we're still not going to suppress. I would reserve the right to argue that the exclusionary rule's costs outweigh its benefits, even if that is shown in a particular case, because there are a myriad of other reasons why the police would have an incentive to improve But if, if, you, if you were to make that argument uh, and it came down to that bald proposition, I assume you would come in uh, with, uh, with some kind of evidentiary basis to tell us exactly what the cost is. And you have spoken of the cost today. You have not spoken of the benefit and the value of of having relatively uh, error-free arrest record-keeping. But I haven't heard anything uh, about the unreasonable cost of the exclusionary rule beyond beyond rhetoric. It's manifested in every case in which reliable probative evidence is Sure, sure it is, but that's, that, that, that does not even get us to, as it were, to half the equation. We want to know how much of that there is, and we want to be able to measure as against that the value that the society is getting uh, by requiring uh, valid uh, arrest warrants and, in a probable cause case, by requiring probable cause. And you can't just walk in and say, well, there's a cost. We know there's a cost. Well, I, I know. I think, Justice Souter, that the Court has ever looked for an empirical count of how many well, cases — Don't you think we should, if I, we are in effect — if you are making a, what sounds to me like an empirical argument, there is a cost to society, cases are being lost, criminals are going free, don't you think that we ought to have a factual basis to know what that cost is? If the Court wants one in order to justify the exclusionary rule, then it probably needs to — go back to scratch and start all but over We've got again. an exclusionary rule now, and in effect you are arguing for an exception to it because the cost is too great. Uh, and it seems to me the burden is on you to tell us what the cost figure is. 
If the — I will say this, Justice Souter. If the cost is very low because very few cases result in suppression, then deterrence is also very low because there are very few cases in which evidence is being suppressed. If you take that argument to the extreme, uh, we won't have an exclusionary rule uh, at all, I suppose. But my argument today does not require the Court to take that step at all because this is an area in which there is a local geography of incentives pertaining to the accuracy of warrants that allows the Court to conduct the balance in a way that's distinct from what it might do if it's confronted with police negligence or if it's confronted with a widespread of course, if you did the cost-benefit analysis the way Justice Stewart would, the cost is always zero to the state because they would not have had the evidence if they'd obeyed the law. Yes, but I think, Justice Stevens, that that form of looking at the question has been rejected in this Court's cases that have recognized that the exclusionary rule has to pay its way because in every case in which it results in suppression, there is a cost to society, and the benefit, therefore, needs to be appreciable, and this Court needs to be confident of that before it concludes that the, what the Court called the massive remedy of exclusion is applied in any particular case. We, we know what the cost was here, right? I mean, they, not just a drug peddler, but somebody with an illegal weapon found in his car, a weapon that presumably he was, would use on an occasion in which it was, in his view, appropriate to do so. Correct. And this arrest itself could have turned into a volatile arrest. And so there, were, there is benefit in this very case and costs if the evidence is suppressed. But, but don't you take the position, I understood you to take the position, and I thought the Court had previously taken the position, that the cost-benefit analysis had to be a systemic one. I think that that's correct, Justice Souter, but I'm not aware of any case in which the Court has said the exclusionary rule has costs, and now we need to see the numbers of statistically exactly how many cases result in suppression. I'm just not aware of any case in which the Court has done that. Well, I, th- I, think, that's, I think that's true. I mean, we, we operate, quite frankly, we operate on the basis of, of, a, of a good guess. And, and I think your argument is saying uh, let's, have, uh, let's have an exception to the good guess. And, and if, you, if you start with the good guess as the baseline, uh, it seems to me, uh, you, you, you ought to have something more than another guess to justify the exception. Well, Justice Souter, what my case comes down to today, I believe, is the proposition that when we're talking about clerical errors made by the police, there are ample incentives for the police not to make those clerical errors that I've described earlier, such that the incremental benefit of the exclusionary rule, which we know has a cost, it has a tangible cost in every case in which it's applied, does not pay its own way. In other words, there is not sufficient incremental deterrence to warrant taking an isolated negligent error in a generally reliable system and saying we need to suppress evidence anyway. And petitioner's argument goes farther than the isolated negligent error case. It says even if the uh, police have driven the error rate down as low as it's humanly possible by committing massive amounts of resources to warrant database systems in order to avoid suppression, which is what the petitioner's theory posits. You should still suppress. And that seems to me nothing more than a return to the theory that when there is a Fourth Amendment violation, suppression automatically follows. And that's but that's not what we have here. And we have uh, a 13 percent error rate. If this case goes your way, the police have limited resources. Why should they spend them on upgrading their computer system when, if there's an error, it won't matter. Well, it does matter, Justice Ginsburg, because the police officers that I'm familiar with and the agencies that I'm familiar with, as exemplified by the NCIC, which is the national database, says that the last thing that we want to do is send officers mistakenly out on a felony arrest where they're going to be placed in a potentially dangerous uh, situation spending community police resources to arrest somebody who should not be arrested. This is not what they want to do. They have a good reason to avoid being placed in that situation. And I would caution the Court against relying on a 13 percent figure in a study that's submitted in a brief to this Court for the first time without any kind of adversarial testing. That is not, I think, a reliable basis for the Court to infer that this particular uh, police department had that kind of an error rate or that the uh, so exclusionary rule is necessary to prevent it from having that kind of an error rate or even that there were no procedures in place to prevent errors and warrants from remaining in the system. The record simply doesn't show that. 
The warrant clerks were on the stand, and neither party asked them the question. So this Court does not have the information to say today, was there a uh, system that would have ferreted this out? We know that if there was, it failed in this case. In Hudson versus Michigan, didn't the Court engage in a very broad balancing of the social costs and uh, the the, Potential for uh, in, in increase in violations in, in saying that uh, there was no necessity for the suppression rule in the no-knock case? Yes, Justice Kennedy. The Court did just that, and it began at the outset with the idea that the massive remedy of suppression of evidence is a high social cost that should not be borne by society, not just the police, by all of us, unless appreciable deterrence will result as a benefit. And the court then examined the incentives that the police had not to make illegal no-knock entries and concluded that whatever incremental benefit there might be from exclusion was not justified in light of the possibility of 1983 liability and the increased professionalism of the police, which has made it less necessary to make the exclusionary rule a remedy of first resort rather than last resort. While this court could conceptualize the case as one in which the government is looking for an exception to the exclusionary rule. I think it's more accurately viewed as one in whether the Court should extend the exclusionary rule to cover negligent police clerical errors. For the first time at this day and age, when 1983 remedies have become more effective. How many 1983 recoveries have there been when someone says that the police uh, they convicted me on the basis of this evidence that wasn't suppressed, but they committed a Fourth Amendment violation, so I should prevail in the 1983 action. How many defendants in that situation have ever won a 1983 action? No one knows, Justice Ginsburg, because a great many of these cases will settle out of court, but our brief does provide examples of conduct that was more serious and more egregious than anything involved in this case resulting in situations where courts denied summary judgment to the defendants and ordered the cases uh, to go to trial. And I'm not suggesting that in a case like this, may I complete the answer, there should be a 1983 remedy, but I am suggesting that civil remedies will provide incentives to the police to avoid the bog of litigation by putting into place systems that will prevent this kind of error. Thank you, Mr. Dreeben. Uh, Ms. Carlin, you have eight minutes remaining. Can I use 30 seconds of your eight minutes, because I want some clarity on this. Absolutely. D- divide, in your mind, two separate things. The nature of the bad conduct. Is it negligent, reckless, deliberate? And the other question is who engaged in it, a police department official or some other official? I thought this case was about the second question. But now I'm confused about the first question, because I suppose a policeman, an arresting officer, makes a negligent error. He goes to the wrong house, and he never looked at the number. And he arrests, starts to arrest the wrong person. Is the evidence suppressed? If the evidence isn't suppressed, frankly, I don't see why a clerical official should be held to a higher standard. But if the evidence is suppressed, then quite possibly the clerical officials should be held to the same standard. So you've heard the government say, well, the answer isn't clear. Very often a negligent official, uh, a negligent officer would not have that evidence suppressed. Well, what is it? The answer to your question, Justice Breyer, is if the police officer in your hypothetical was negligent, the evidence would be suppressed. There are cases where the mistake of the officer was a reasonable mistake. That is, he did not. Negligent. Then he was not negligent. So I want to know if he is negligent. Are you sure that that's because I I think I'm getting a different view from the I am absolutely certain that the answer is if he was negligent and there was not probable cause, if there was not probable cause and one of the other exceptions to the exclusionary rule does not apply, then the evidence will be suppressed. And the definition of negligence is that he was not objectively reasonable. That's correct. All right, so if right. it's the same. And the rule we are asking for here, the narrow rule for our petitioner is when you have negligent error by police officials, you suppress. But as Justice Scalia pointed out in my colloquy with him earlier, uh, that rule is perhaps slightly less workable than a rule that says all error. 
Now, we have given you a workable rule here, and we still have not heard, I believe, a workable rule from the government, because uh, what Mr. Dreben tells you is that under some circumstances there will be suppression. And I just want to make one factual uh, correction here, which is about the 13 percent. It was a study by the FBI. It's a very dated study because they haven't done a more recent one, and it was statewide. But let's assume for purposes of argument here that if 13 percent of the errors in the file are there because the police are not maintaining their records properly, there ought to be suppression of a warrantless arrest based on that. Because otherwise you're really telling the Department that good enough for government work is, you know, one out of six warrants is invalid, one out of seven warrants is invalid, but that's okay. So then what you would have to have in each case is a hearing. And at the hearing, we would be entitled to discovery. But, but in, that, in that hypothetical, I think it might be easy to say that the uh, policeman on, on the beat was not objectively reasonable but, in relying. But Justice That's Kennedy. not the case here. But Justice Kennedy, if you believe in the government's rule, we should have the right to audit that system to show that 13 percent of the warrants. I, I in agree the with system. that. If, if um, uh, uh, to, to say with Mr. Dreeben that we don't have to decide that today is just unrealistic. If we have to decide today uh, whether we're going to adopt a rule that uh, down the road will turn every exclusionary uh, request into a pretrial investigation of the procedures of the, of the police. Yeah, that's a major, no, major no, not, trial. Not the procedures of the police. You no, get, but if the they're going to be the officers on the stand and you say, all right, you've been here a while. How many times have these warrants turned out to be wrong? Just as simple as it was in this case. And he said, gosh, this is the first time that I've had this well, but, question. But one of the things we know from the oral argument and the transcript in Evans is that clerk said this is the first time there's ever been an error like this. And it turned out there were four errors made the same day. Okay, cross-examine so, people. These what people are we under supposed oath to cross-examine them. You say, I don't think that's right. How many times you called? You know, it's not that big a deal okay, to, if, to find out on what basis the arresting officer was acting. Right, but we would be entitled, I think, Mr. Chief Justice, to say to the clerk on the stand, have you ever conducted an audit? And she says, no, but our system is reliable. At that point, I think we're entitled to an audit. That is, we're entitled to hire an expert at government expense to figure out how many times this department has gotten it wrong. Isn't your rule also going to require hearings? If negligence is required, you're going to have to have a hearing on whether there was negligence. If so, who was negligent? If only causation is required, you're going to have to have a hearing on who caused it. Justice Lito, we had a hearing in this case that's adequate to the rule that we have, and it took approximately two hours. And will that be the case in every instance? It will be the case more often than that you'll have a two-hour hearing if you, you have you know to show that? isolated and What basis do you have for saying that? How do you know that? How many of these hearings have you examined? Hearings in which there was no warrant? I've examined none, but I can't imagine that it would take more than two hours. In this case, it took two hours. All you have to do is figure out who said there was a warrant when there wasn't one. Was it a court employee under Evans? The answer is then clear. You let the evidence in. Was it not the court? That is, everybody concedes that the court called. Everybody concedes the warrant was removed. Everybody concedes that the uh, warrant went back. Then you answer it that way. Suppose it were an agency like uh, INS or Customs in which uh, they have many people that are not sworn officers and some people that are. Does it make a difference who, who answered the phone? I don't think the sworn officer distinction makes a difference. I think the agency does. And if I could refer to the state cases here, I think they illustrate how to answer your question more precisely, Justice Kennedy. That is, a number of states suppress evidence under these circumstances. And they ask what's a question of law that then applies to all future cases, which is, is this agency an adjunct of law enforcement or is it something else? So, for example, in California, the Department of Corrections, not. They are not an adjunct. And so uh, errors by the Department of Corrections, evidence is admitted. The state of Florida, the Department of Motor Vehicles, is an adjunct. So there, if the Department of Motor Vehicles makes the mistake, there is suppression. This rule has been In in Wren, we said this is exactly the inquiry we're not going to make. I'm not sure. Wren was where uh, we we had a traffic stop made by a narcotics officer. And That's the question correct. was, well, this, he was going outside his jurisdiction. We said, we're not going to get into the way police, police uh, departments are organized. We're just not going to do it. That's, That's correct. Wren. And here, no, I understand Wren perfectly well, Justice Kenney, but the question here is not a Wren case. It's what counts as the police? 
And that's the only question we're asking you to answer here is what counts as the police? Everyone who works for the police department. When they make a negligent error, that's enough. Now let me turn for just a moment to the question of the bloated records and their incentives. Uh, that, that's, that's your bottom line position has to be a negligent error. In this case, yes. I just, yes, I'm perfectly well, happy. What is the position you're arguing for? You want not the rule that only when it's a negligent error. That's We what are arguing for that rule, okay. but we wanted you to understand that there is a trade-off, as you identified earlier. Our rule is, I think, a clean, narrow rule. It may require, as Justice Alito has pointed out, slightly more detailed hearings. Um, let me turn now to this question of the incentives, which is the, the incentives of departments, as illustrated in this case, are uh, to leave uh, the question of maintaining records to the, to the end of the line in spending their resources, because they are not going to have to serve these warrants. These warrants serve as an opportunity to stop and arrest someone they otherwise wouldn't be able to stop and arrest here, because they lack probable cause. All they had to do to cite just, uh, Justice Kane to cite Wren to you is if they wanted to follow him for a while, I'm sure they could have found a motor vehicle violation at some point and pulled him over. But they didn't even want to do that. They just wanted to use this warrant. So that's assuming bad faith on the part of the police. No, it's good faith. They, they understood. They, they want to arrest him, so they follow him until they find a motor vehicle uh, violation. This Court has said that's absolutely fine and it's not bad faith. But you're suggesting it's bad faith. No, I'm not suggesting they, that. Uh, because they don't want to have to worry about getting a warrant that might be wrong. No, no, that's not what I said, Mr. Chief Justice. May I have So what was the point of — well, sure, as long as I'm asking the questions, you should answer. <laughs> uh, what was your point then? You're saying, well, they want to get this guy, and they don't have to go through the warrant or anything else. They can follow him, find the broken taillight. Then they will have gotten that guy. I thought that was the point you were trying to make. No, the point I was, uh, the point I was trying to make is that there are other techniques here if you have an as yet inarticulable suspicion that somebody is a bad guy that you can use that comply with the Constitution. What you can't do is rely on a warrant that doesn't exist and then turn around and say, uh, police error, but we're entitled to rely on our own error. May I ask one, sure. one question, Chief? Uh, your, your, your comment seems to assume that these warrants just lie there and the police only use them incidentally. I have always assumed that when war warrants out, part of the job of the police is to is to arrest the person. Isn't isn't that the case? Well, there are really two very different kinds of warrants out there, Justice Scalia, as I understand it. One is warrants the police go and try and find themselves, and then they are trying to serve those aggressively. But there are a lot of warrants, like this one that sat in a file for five months. Nobody tried to serve it during the vast majority of that time. Mm. Because a lot of these warrants, as, as is true in this case, are for failure to answer a calendar call or for not paying a parking fine on time, or for not sending in your fine on a motor vehicle. In the Ott case that we cite, it was a failure to pay child support. So those are not the kinds of things where the police are serving the warrants aggressively. Thank, Thank you, you, Ms. Carlin. The case is submitted.